Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Worship team, good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, if you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. Uh, it is an exciting morning for us as a church, a lot to celebrate, a lot to be thankful for. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Uh, before we get to that, just a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, if you're visiting with us uh, and I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to get to know you. I'm going to hang out in the foyer after the service. Uh, my name is Jason. I, I serve as lead pastor here, but, but really, as we'll see this morning, more important than that, I'm a member of the church, and I would, I would belong to this church even if I was not the lead pastor, and I mean that sincerely. So if you're visiting with us, uh, you're looking for a church home, I highly recommend Solid Rock Church. Uh, we are not a perfect people, uh, but we are a people in love with a perfect God, and He is transforming us day by day, and so just invite you to come be a part of Solid Rock Story if that's you. Um, love to meet you, love to get you connected at the Welcome Center and, and all those other things you've already heard. Um, so as we think about all the things we're thankful for and the things that we're celebrating this morning, this is our second Sunday in this space, and so again, if this is your first Sunday, we're, this, we're brand new in this space. There are a lot of things that we haven't worked out yet, uh, still some things on the list to get done. We haven't put a cross up in the room yet. Uh, we still need door stops, so if that's your expertise, come let us know. Uh, we'll get you hooked up with a uh, with a couple of projects, uh, but we're thankful to be in here, and we're thankful that God is already using this space. Um, you're going to see this morning even, um, we've got a baptism, our first baptism this morning, um, and then we have baptisms lined up for the next two Sundays, um, and then just expecting God to continue that powerful work um, in our church and through our church. Uh, we had, I think, around 480 people here last Sunday for our first Sunday, and just to kind of give you some bearings, um, last year in 2020, January, was our biggest month ever. Uh, we averaged 400 people per Sunday uh, before COVID hit, and we went online. And so if you think about that, our biggest month ever, we averaged 400. And our first Sunday in here, we're at 480. And, and that's more than just a number. That represents 480 souls that are being drawn to Jesus through the gospel. And so we're so excited about that. We're excited about the baptisms. We're excited that you're here. And our hope and our expectation is that God will speak to you today and wherever you are, um, not just physically, but wherever you are spiritually, that God would draw you um, deeper into a relationship with him today through his word. Um, a couple of things uh, that I'm excited about as we move into this new space. One, we're only doing two services now, which A, is just easier if you're preaching. Like people ask me, what's it like to preach three services? I said, well, you get to the third sermon, and it's like, I can't remember if I've said this two times or three times today. And so it's like, it's, but with two, at least I know I've only said it once. So that part's nice, but more than that, like we have a commons area now, and so now with two services, we get to at least see everybody, and that is such a blessing. I've already heard that from you guys. It's like, I get to see so-and-so, even if we go to different services, whereas before, you were coming up to me and going, hey, was so-and-so here today? And I'm like, yeah, I think they were in the 842, sir. Do we have an 842? Like, I don't even know. I think I've seen them today, but now you get to see each other, and we get to cross paths, and um, we actually have an exciting opportunity to be all in the same place at the same time coming up, and that is our vision night that's coming up on June 11th. Um, if you've been around for the last month or two, you know we've tried to get this on the schedule, and the, the delay in opening up the room changed the date, and then we had a rain out for the outside version, but now it's on the calendar, and we don't expect to get rain delayed. On Friday, June 11th, we're going to meet in here at one place, one time, the whole church, um, and what we're going to do at that time is we're going to celebrate 
um, what God has done so far in the Solid Rock story. We'll be going through different pieces of that. We'll also be talking about what is to come and where he's leading us. And so just encourage you to mark your calendars for uh, June 11th for our vision night. There are cards in the seats in front of you. And so these are meant not only as a reminder for you, but also an invitation. So if they're in there, grab them. Uh, If you're on the front row, they're in the seats behind you. Grab them on the way out uh, and use this as an opportunity to invite your neighbors, invite friends. Um, This is for everybody to come be involved, not just our Solid Rock family, but for the community to come be a part of what God is doing. So that's what these are. Grab one of these and invite somebody to vision night. All right, so we are in uh, last week. We wrapped up our Joshua series as we moved into this new space, and now we're going back to the Gospel of John. So, again, if you're new here, we've been in the Gospel of John for like 10 years, and, uh, and we should wrap it up sometime late this year. But where we left off was in John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And so we're going to pick that story back up in John 13, 12, where now he turns to the disciples and gives some instruction. One thing to note before we get there, though, is... Earlier on, as, as Jesus is going around washing the disciples' feet, it's Peter who stops him and says, Hey, Jesus, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't like the idea of you washing my feet. And Jesus said to Peter, Hey, you don't understand this now, but afterwards you will understand. And so that's where we're going to pick the story back up in John chapter 13, starting in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, in a practical sense, it's not too hard to understand what Jesus just said, right? I washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. Take a step back for a minute, because foot washing isn't something we do a lot in our culture today, so we need to understand what Jesus is getting at. Is he saying, every time we show up on Sunday mornings, drop your shoes, and the elders will be back there with water basins, and they're going to scrub your toes before you take your seat? Now, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Matter of fact, I think if we go back to the first part of the chapter, we're going to see that this idea of foot washing is really symbolic of a greater truth, a more powerful truth. That what Jesus is about to do on the cross is represented in his foot washing, that he's about to lay his life down for his friends, to lay his life down for the sins of the people. And so as he's washing the disciples' feet, he's comparing that to making the disciples clean, spiritually speaking. So we know that on a, on a bigger level, a higher level, Jesus is talking about more than just practically washing one another's feet. And we also know that foot washing really isn't necessary these days. Hopefully you have a place to wash your own feet. The idea of foot washing, though, in this particular period of time was, was, was an incredibly important part of society, a part of being clean. We, t- we talked about it when we were earlier on in the series, how if you went to somebody's house, depending on how much money and influence they had would determine who would be washing your feet. If you just went to an average blue-collar home, you know, kind of middle-class home, more than likely there would be a basin of water as you walked in the doors. Hey, go ahead and scrub your feet, clean your feet before you come in. But if it was a well-to-do family, a wealthy family, a family of influence, they would have enough money to afford to have a servant to wash your feet, assigned. And it was the lowest position in the household. Okay, and so if you were entry-level servant in somebody's house, you were the foot washer. Okay, so it was, a, it was a really integral part of that culture and that society for very practical reasons, but it was also a symbolism of, of status. 
And so it's really important for us to understand that as we, we look at Jesus, the Son of God, taking the position of the lowest servant as he washes his disciples' feet. And so now he turns to the disciples and says, all right, guys, in the same way that I've washed your feet, I want you to wash one another's feet. What I want to note, first of all, is what Jesus says here. He says, hey, guys, you call me Lord and teacher. Now, he doesn't follow that up with, hey, guys, don't call me that anymore. Call me now the foot washer. He said, no, and rightly so. It's right that you call me that. And if I, as your Lord and teacher, that's my position, your Lord, your teacher, am willing to wash your feet, therefore you go wash one another's feet. So Jesus' position as Lord and teacher was never in jeopardy as he takes on the position of the servant who washes feet. I want to think about that now. What Jesus is doing for us today, and we're going to see this again next week, is he's really painting a vivid picture of what it means to be the church. And there are other phrases or, or words that we use to describe what we mean by the church. We talk about biblical community. So when we use that, that phrase, that title, we're talking about what does it mean to be a community distinct from the community around us. So we don't just mean geographically Solid Rock Church is West Fort Worth. When we talk about biblical community, we mean a community that, that functions and operates according to biblical principles. Uh, another phrase that, that we will sometimes use is gospel culture. Meaning that there is a culture we live in, an American culture, and more specifically we're in the South, and more specifically we're part of an of, of a, uh, urban community. So we have all these different cultures here that we exist in. But regardless of what culture surrounds the church, there's a gospel culture inside that is distinct and different from the culture around us. And so what Jesus is commanding them to do here is really he's getting at one of the distinctives that separates gospel culture from the culture outside. What distinguishes between biblical community and geographic community. What it means to be a part of the church, one of Jesus' followers, versus maybe just being religious or into spiritualism or being even atheist. What, what's distinct about the church? What should a person, think of it this way, who is not a Christian, who is not a member of the church, what should they experience when they walk through our doors that is distinct from any other doors that they could walk through in our community? What distinguishes us as the church? And so here Jesus gives a distinctive when he says, here's something that should distinguish you guys as my followers. You are willing to wash one another's feet. I want to pick this back up in verse, let's pick this up in 16. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, this, this language is, is not isolated to this one event where Jesus talks about the kingdom this way. Matter of fact, in the Gospel of Mark, I'll just read the way he says it in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. He pulls the disciples aside and says, guys, I want to tell you how my kingdom's going to operate. I want to tell you what biblical community needs to look like. I'm going to tell you what the church is to look like. And in John, uh, Mark 10, he says it um, this way. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, You guys know how it works out there in your jobs, in the government, in your social circles. Whoever is in charge often reminds the people underneath them that they're in charge. They lord it over them. 
right? So you go to work, and your boss wants to make sure that you know he or she is the boss. Sometimes it's explicit. (laughs) I'm the boss. I'm in charge here. Sometimes it's more subtle, right? But there's this constant reminder that somebody else is in charge. That's how the world functions. And so here in Mark 10, he says this, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Those are meant to be strong words. Jesus is not saying, hey, I hope it doesn't look that way when the church gets together. He's saying it shall not be. It better not be. It should not be so among God's people. Now, I was talking in the 930 service about that. So in my position here as the pastor, like one of the things that I forget to do sometimes is take the microphone off. Uh, when I go out into the foyer area, I'm walking around. Now, I have learned to mute it at least. Um, so don't be afraid to come up and talk to me or let's pray together. But um, sometimes I'll forget I have it on and somebody new will walk in and I'm talking to them. They go, you must be the pastor. And I'm like, oh, what is it? Oh, the face mic, right? Because at the end of the day, like I, I truly want to be seen as one of the members here. I want to greet you that way. I don't want you to feel like, oh, you're the guy who has to do it. You're the, you're the pastor, right? Like that is my functional title here, but that's not who I am in Christ, Okay, now in the world outside of the church, though, the guy in charge, the lady in charge, wears a title, has a position. And we celebrate these things as American culture, don't we? Somebody gets a promotion, we throw a party, good job. We, we celebrate the idea of working your way up the ladder, acquiring authority, acquiring position. But think about it, what Jesus is laying out for us is, is a little bit upside down from that, isn't it? And he says to the disciples, guys, I know how it works out there. People in authority, they lord it over their subjects, but it shall not be among my people. Now, we bring that back to John 13, and we see what Jesus is doing here when he says, guys, you guys call me, or I'm, you call me Lord and teacher, and rightly so, because that's who I am. But that doesn't, right, that, that doesn't diminish my ability to humble myself to the position of a servant and to serve you. So now, therefore, you go and serve one another in the same manner. So we think about some of the distinctions about like American culture where we celebrate authority or position, accolades, even the idea of autonomy, right? Self-autonomy, self-sufficiency. That's, that's the American way, right? This culture and this society, you can, you can make your way through the world. You can become anything you want to do. Opportunities are before you. Like go take, take, your, take control of your life and become something, right? We celebrate that, self-sufficiency. What we're going to see through, not just Jesus washing disciples' feet, but his command to us as his people, is that really that's upside down. And that's not the way he wants his church to operate and function. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. We're the messengers in this equation, church. So you see how backwards it is for you and I to lord our position over one another? If our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, is willing to humble himself and serve us, guys, we're the messengers. We've been served by by Jesus himself. He says, now you go. And we begin to see how ridiculous it is for us to not be willing to do that and to serve one another in such a humble manner. And, And here's what he says in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
That's a really important phrase. He didn't have to add that in, which is interesting because if we think about what we might conceptualize as a blessed life, it more often than not aligns with the American dream, does it not? What is the blessed life? Things come to mind like, oh, a certain house in a certain neighborhood in a certain position in a certain level of status that has a, has a certain level or lack there of stress. And like we have these things that, are, that coincide with the American dream. And what Jesus is saying here that leads to a blessed life is a life of servitude towards one another. A willingness to take the position of the lowest servant position towards one another. If you do this, it leads to what? According to Jesus, a blessed life. Blessing is not found in self-sufficiency. It's not found in autonomy. It's not found in position or authority or power. Think of it this way. I'm sure we have some business owners in the room. Being the owner of a business does not automatically equal blessing. Matter of fact, most honest entrepreneurs will tell you the opposite. It was such a blessing when all I had to do was show up and clock in. But now that I'm responsible and I feel the weight and the burden of making payroll and keeping, keeping the pipeline moving and all these sorts of things that come with it. You know, for the person who's not the business, I mean, I just wish I was owning my own business. What a blessed life. I can just travel, I just do what I want. And then the entrepreneur or the business says, that's not how it works. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is like, you want the blessed life? You want blessing? Listen to what I'm teaching you today and do it. Now, here comes a challenge that we're going to talk about. When God's word instructs us to do things that does not make sense to us, the question comes in, are we going to do it anyway? Because you might look at this and go, that doesn't sound like blessing. Like humbling myself to serve others. Like, okay, every once in a while, I'm good with that. But like taking the position of servant, mm, that doesn't sound like blessing to me. The question is, are you going to do it even if it doesn't make sense to you? Because there is so much about the kingdom of God that is different from the world out there. And you're going to be challenged with doing things that do not make sense to you. And here's why Jesus is bringing it up. He's like, hey, you know how the world works. You know what makes sense to the world. Guys, let me tell you how it works in my kingdom. Become the servant. Now, here's another note I want to make sure we, we pay attention to. He's not calling them to serve. He's calling them to become servants. What's the distinction? If I, if I serve you, I can turn that on and turn it off. When it's convenient, when I see a need in your life and it fits into my schedule and I step into the, to the servant role and I serve you, and then when I'm done, I turn it back off. Go, so glad I did that. I'm glad it's done. Now I get to go back to my busy life, my busy schedule. That's not what he's calling you to. He's not just calling you to every once in a while serve one another. He's saying, no, no, no. Take the position of servant. Take the position of servant towards one another. That's, that's much more powerful, isn't it? than just serving every once in a while. And so I have washed your feet, you wash one another's feet. I'm going to go to Colossians chapter 3 for a minute, where the Apostle Paul describes a little bit of what it means to be a part of the church and how we are to interact with one another. We, we looked at the first part of this passage a few weeks ago in Colossians 3. This is where um, Paul is talking about um, taking off the old self and putting on the new self when you become a Christian. Take off your old self and put on the new self. 
Well, in Colossians 3.12, he begins to describe gospel culture or biblical community or what the church is supposed to look like. Listen to how Paul describes how we are to interact with one another. This is Colossians chapter 3. I'll pick this up in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Stop. This is a really important thing. You've got to hear this. Paul is so good at doing this. When we get to what we're supposed to be doing or not doing um, as Christians, I think so many times in the church, we just leap from where I'm at to go get busy and do a bunch of stuff. Here's a list of things don't do. Here's what you need to be doing if you're going to be a good Christian. The Apostle Paul almost always starts with, first of all, our identity in Christ. And I love that about him. Why does that matter? I'll show you in just a minute. So here's what he says. Before he gives you a bunch of things to go do, He's going to give you some challenging things to go do. He reminds you first of who you are. So who are we? Verse 12. Put on then, what? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you already are in Christ. Here's the mistake we make. If we operate the way the world operates, where our position comes as a result of what we do or don't do, then what we do in the church is we say, okay, give me the list of stuff to do so that I can become holy and beloved. And on days where we're like, we're feeling good about ourselves, we feel holy and beloved. On the days where we're struggling, the days where we're, we're operating in weakness, I'm not holy and beloved anymore. Paul said, no, 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 no. Before we get to the do's and don'ts, let's first of all remember who we already are, church. Now going back to where Jesus says, hey, I'm your Lord and teacher. That's the right thing to call me. And that does not change because I take the position of a servant. Paul is saying, listen, your identity is not going to change by obeying these rules. You are either in Christ, holy and beloved, or you're not. And for those who are, who are in Christ, who are holy and beloved, now, because that's who you are, here's what I'm going to call you and command you to go do. And here's what he says. This is challenging. Here's what you're to put on. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility meekness and patience okay on some level you're able to to display these things and for most of us it's pretty easy to be compassionate when we're around compassionate people and it's pretty easy to be patient with people who don't test our patience that's why birds of the feather flock together that's why most of the people who are in your close friend circles are, are not people who get on your nerves You've already unfriended all the people who get on your nerves. Right? You keep them at a distance. But the people you invite in are the people who don't trample on your pet peeves. They don't irritate you. They don't get on your nerves. They're not the needy people. Right? And so when we think about these things, we think about people in our life who we display them towards, and there's a certain group of people who go, okay, I can be that way. I'll be compassionate. But we're going to see in just a second that's not who he's talking about. Matter of fact, if you look at the next two descriptions of what we're to do, we begin to realize he's thinking about the people who are hardest to love. Look at what he says. Bear with one another. So not only are we displaying compassion, humility, meekness, all these things towards the people who are showing those things towards us, but he says this. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So what Paul is saying is, listen, church, I'm not talking about the easy to love people. I'm talking about the hard to love people. 
I'm talking about the people who are going to test your patience. Those are the people I'm commanding you to be patient with. Bear with one another. It means that somebody's going to be, they're going to be on, on your nerves, messing with your pet peeves, operating in a way, right, where you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to bear with one another? And then to take it a step further, he said, listen, I'm commanding you to display this towards people who sin against you. How do we know that? Because he said, what? Forgive one another. So these ideas, these concepts of compassion, kindness, meekness, are to be displayed towards those who were hardest to display it towards. You see that? Now that's going to come all, bring us all the way back to John 13 in, in just a moment. But I want to point out something else that comes out of this passage. Here's what happens, verse 15. Actually, let's back up to 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds, so think about that word, binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So Paul's going to say now, dearly beloved, if you will display these things towards one another, especially the people who sin against you, here's the result. The first thing he says is it's going to bind you together. Okay, so the idea of the church oftentimes in the New Testament is compared to a marriage relationship. This, until death do we part covenant. Not easy come, easy go. Right, so it's not like, oh, the preacher says something I didn't like today, I'm out of here. I didn't like the way that person over there looked at me, I'm out of here. I didn't like what that person had to say, they just really had an attitude today, I'm going to find a new church. The New Testament saying that's not bound together. We're actually supposed to be bound together. Like husband and wife bound together, committed to one another, till death do we part. I was thinking about this idea, and um, I've got uh, two boys. Hi. And when they were younger, we tried this thing where when they didn't get along and they argued, we put one T-shirt over them and made them, like, get it. Have you seen this? I don't know. We saw it on Pinterest or something. And so you, put, you take two kids who aren't getting along, you make them stand face to face, and you take a grown-up T-shirt and put it over, and they have to put their, both of their arms go through the arms, and both their heads come through the head. And, oh, my gosh, you might as well have taken two cats throwing them in a burlap sack, and throwing them in a lake, dude. It was not pretty. It didn't work, all right? But the idea of being bound together, closely connected. I can't get away from you. You can't get away from me. That's the, that's the idea here. Bound, handcuffed, chained. But he doesn't stop there. He adds another layer of illustration on top of this that makes it a really beautiful thing. He said, you guys will, you guys will be in perfect harmony with one another. So this idea of harmony really is a technical term that describes music, and I won't bore you with all the, the technicality, but the idea is that when, like, our musicians get up here on stage, they don't all just play and sing the same note. Matter of fact, if you hear a great pianist, there are notes going all over the place. But in order for those notes to be in harmony, to be pleasant to your ears, first of all, they need to be in the same key. If not, it's going to sound like nails on a chalkboard. But more than that, within the key, they need to be within a certain chord structure. So it's a very technical thing for notes to come together and, and to, make, to make music that sounds like harmony. Like what, what our band does is just amazing. All these different people doing all these different things and it all comes together as harmony. That's the description of how the church should function. When we're displaying kindness, compassionate hearts, meekness, kind towards one another, especially those who sin against you, and not only will we be bound together, it will be like a beautiful, perfect harmony. Like we're, we're all singing in the same key. We're all living in the same key. And then he ends with this, this wording, one body. United together. Who doesn't want that? Like don't, don't you want that, church? For us to feel like one body, one family, unified, 
bound together in a good way. Beautiful harmony coming out of our lives. Okay, well, here's what we have to do to get that. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on meekness. Bear with one another and be willing to forgive one another when you're sinned against. And he goes on to say in Colossians 3, listen to this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We talked about last week, what does it mean to be the church? We have to be anchored in God's word, meaning we listen to, we read, and we follow instructions of God's word for his people. Well, this is what Paul's referring. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Well, guess what happens when we do that? He says it. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I think we get the teaching part. At some level, that's kind of what I'm doing here. When you guys get together over coffee, you're talking about God's word, you're teaching one another. But admonishing, that means to correct somebody gently, which means what? We're going to have to have hard conversations. We just are. Why? Because I am going to offend you, and you're going to offend me. <gasps> yeah. Spoiler alert. You're still wrestling with the flesh. I can see it. So, so am I. And when, when my flesh comes to the surface and it rubs you wrong or it offends you or I sin against you, you have to bring that to me and vice versa. I was admonished recently, actually it was two Sundays ago, a member of our church, a lady who's on leadership team came to me and said, hey, can I share something with you? And I could tell it took a lot of courage to come to me. Hey, I just need to share something with you where you said something and it just, I've just been harboring this, 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 this feelings towards you and I'm like, oh, I know where you're going with this. You mean like two weeks ago when I, I know I did it. She's like, no, 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 like four weeks ago. <laughs> I'm like, ah. But here's the thing. I was completely unaware that I had offended or hurt somebody. Matthew 18 says the person has an obligation to bring that to me. She brought it to me in humility and courage. Listen, she washed my feet by admonishing me, by gently showing me where I had made a mistake and my words had hurt her. And I was able to ask for her forgiveness. If she had never done that, you see how redemption wouldn't have happened? This is, this is what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, all right, guys, you go wash one another's feet. You think about it. This is the Thursday night before he's about to, they're going to dismiss from dinner, go out into the garden and pray, and Judas is going to bring um, the authorities to arrest Jesus. Like, that's about to happen after the foot washing. As Jesus washes his feet, it's this beautiful, living kind of metaphor of him laying his life down on the cross to cleanse us of, of our sins. So think about that. You remember the words of Jesus. No greater love has this than a man would do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is not calling you to scrub one another's foot grime. Feel free to do that, but it must be symbolic of something greater for it to mean anything. He's calling you to lay your life down for your friends, to take the position of servant. So we start to think now, okay, if that's what he's saying, that's pretty challenging because I can do that towards some people, but let's be honest, that's hard to do towards others. I think that's why we need to go back to John 13 and see how Jesus finishes this conversation. What's interesting to note, as this is happening, Jesus is doing this for the 12, which means Judas is involved. Not only is Judas there and present and involved, John, the gospel writer, 
make sure that we remember that Judas is there and involved. Look at how this section wraps up. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. This is a prophecy that somebody from among his inner circle of 12 disciples who has dipped the bread in the cup at the Passover meal is actually one of his betrayers. So Jesus said, listen, that's, 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 that's happening here. And it's happening so that this prophecy may be fulfilled. Verse 19, I am telling you this now. Why? So that we can figure, try to figure out who it is? No. He says, I'm telling you this now. I'm pointing out that there's a betrayer among us. Why? Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, why is that important? So Jesus is making it clear that there's one of the 12 who is going to betray him. And so they're all looking around, who is it? He said, listen, once you see here in just a little bit who that betrayer is, I'm doing this, I'm telling you ahead of time so that you will know something. So you will know that I am he. And what's interesting in the original language, the pronoun is not there. It's just that you will know that I am. And this means something, especially in the Gospel of John, who captures these powerful I am statements from Jesus. Why is that important? As Jesus takes the position of a servant, Philippians 2 says that he became a servant even to the point of death. His position was never in jeopardy. He didn't just serve, turn on the service button and serve for a little and turn it off. He took the position of servant. But his position as the great I am was never in jeopardy. Why am I saying that? Because listen, church, I know it's challenging to live this out with one another. And the world around us would say, if you take the position of servant, people are going to take advantage of you. They'll trample over you. If you're a boss, show no weakness. But the idea here is if you're a boss, if you're a manager, you walk into a bathroom and the trash can is overflowing, right? Your, your position of management is never in jeopardy by wrapping up that trash and taking it out. The world, though, would say what? Leave that for somebody else. That's somebody else's job. And that may be the way that the world functions. That may be how your workplace functions. But that's not the way the church is to function. By serving one another, our positions, our identity is never in jeopardy. Matter of fact, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 13, uh, John tells us what Jesus knew. Listen to how this chapter starts. It's so important. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, what did he know? His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So that tells us something. What was on Jesus' mind that's driving him as he does this? He knows what? He knows his position in relationship to the Father, and he trusts the Father's plan. So that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Not does this make sense. Not if I serve you will I get from you what I want. But this, if God has called me to do this, do I really trust his plan? Do I trust the principles of the kingdom? Do I trust the principles of, of gospel culture? Do I believe the way that God describes biblical community to be lived out? If I'll live that out, even if it calls me to serve, that it will lead to true blessing. Do I believe that or not? And I'm asking you that. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you trust God's word enough to live by biblical principles, even and especially when it draws a contrast with the world out there? That's what it means to live by faith. 
Do you believe God's word enough to live by it? And then he says this at the very end, truly, truly, verse 20, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Um, I got together with our preaching team earlier this week, and we were talking about that particular verse and why it's dropped right here in this part of the the story. And what I think what what we concluded was this, that there's just simply a really um, um, accurate representation between our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Right? To receive Christ means you receive the one who sent him, and vice versa. So Christ is saying that to his disciples. He says, I'm willing to do this for you. Now, you're the sent ones. You're the messengers. Go do it for each other. You go live out amongst each other what I have lived out for you. And think about that. What does your salvation mean? It means your relationship with God has been restored. Is that it? Nope. Your relationship with his people has been restored too. And a practical example would be this. I've got two boys. Um, if ever at any point in our relationship with one another, if, 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 if my two boys get into a place where their relationship is not intact and they're at odds with one another, then guess what? It impacts the whole family. If I've got a, a, one of my boys says to his brother, I'm just not going to have a relationship with you. I'm, I'm bouncing. Oh, but dad, mom, I still want to have a relationship with you. It's just not possible to have the fullness of what that relationship means, right? Why? Because my relationship with my son is a reflection and it impacts the relationship with one another and vice versa. And pull that into our relationship with God. So God loves you. He is, if you're in Christ, he's saved you. He's forgiven you of sins. He's restored you. But guess what? He says, now go do that for each other. Your relationship with one another in Christ should reflect your relationship with God. And when your relationship with one another is not intact, your relationship with your Heavenly Father is not intact. That's a bold statement. It's not. You can't walk in opposition to a brother and sister in Christ and expect your relationship with God to be perfectly fine. He says it doesn't work that way. If I'm explaining grace towards you, I need you to bend that out towards one another. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here at the end. Our relationship with one another should reflect our relationship with him. That's why he says, guys, I just washed your feet. Now go do it for each other. Go become one another's servants. I just want to read a few words from Philippians as we wrap up. Philippians 2, I referred to this earlier. Just a, just a quick description. Again, a biblical community. Um, I'll pick this up. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 3. Listen to the way that gospel community is described. And think about how it contrasts with the world you know outside the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's gospel culture. And your identity is never in jeopardy when you do that. Because your identity is rooted in Christ. Just a couple of questions to think about as we wrap up here today. First of all, I'm hoping that there's been a time in your life where you've experienced somebody serving you. A parent, family member, a friend, maybe even a complete stranger. So you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that on some level, right? I, I hope you've had that experience. Maybe you're here today and say, I've never experienced that. Okay, that's, I- I'm sorry that you haven't experienced that. But, but those of us who have, we know how that, it's more than just makes you feel good. It makes you feel loved, accepted, and secure, Right? Okay, so now I want you to think about 
why you and I don't serve one another like that more consistently. We love to be on the receiving end of that. Why then do we only wait till it's convenient or obvious to serve one another? Why aren't we living that way more consistently? I want you to think about this last question. And I understand it's challenging, but I want you to to think about it. How does it challenge you personally to think about taking on the position of a servant towards other people in the church? How does that challenge you personally? What's what's at risk for you? What's keeping you from saying, yes, that's how I want to live? How does it challenge you personally to think that Jesus is commanding you to take the position of servant towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? And I just want to let that question kind of resonate for a minute if we can as we get ready to pray. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray um, for us. I'll pray for you. And however God is speaking to you, I'll pray for you if you're at home listening, um, that his Holy Spirit would continue the good work he's began in you this morning. Um, and then in a minute, um, as our worship team comes back up, we're actually going to transition to a time of baptism. We're going to celebrate that together as well. But before we get to that, what I want to do is I just want to spend some time praying with you and for you. Okay, can we do that now? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this challenging word from John 13. Father, it would be so much easier if we just uh, concluded that all you want us to do is physically wash one another's feet. But what you're calling us to is, is so much deeper than that. It's so much more powerful than that. Jesus, as you use this idea of foot washing to describe your death on the cross for us to cleanse us of our sins, you're calling us to extend that same grace and mercy toward one another. And so, Father, we're praying that Solid Rock Church could become a church that, that serves one another, that what, what distinguishes us maybe from, from the rest of this community or other organizations around us is that inside um, the church, inside these relationships we call biblical community, that, Father, there truly would be an expression of taking on the, the, the position of servant towards one another. So, Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would continue to speak and move God, for the people who are here present, for those who are at home, maybe somebody's listening to this later in the week, God, that you would move and work powerfully in our lives through your word. And Father, as we get ready to transition to baptism, Father, we pray. God, if anybody here does not know personally that through um, the testimony of the one being baptized, that you draw them to yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to turn this over to Jason in just a minute. Um, just really quickly, though. Um, if you've never seen a baptism, you don't know what that is or why people do it. Baptism is something that Jesus has commanded his followers to do as an, as an outward expression of an inward faith and trust. And so when you see somebody being baptized, the water is just water, okay? It's just tap water. But what's supernatural about it is the work that Jesus does inside that person's life as they express their faith publicly. And so maybe you're here today and you've never taken that, that step. And if you want to know more about baptism, I encourage you to come grab one of us. Uh, check in at the Welcome Center. Uh, but for now, I want to turn this over to Jason Martin, music minister, to lead us in baptism.